Welcome to Creatively Christian, a podcast by Theophany Media, where we inspire, inform, educate, and empower creative Christians of all types. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Hollingsworth. In this special exclusive episode recorded in 2020, Theophany Media President Jake Dobrins discusses with Christian publishing pro Steve Lobby about working with a literary agent. All right, I'm super excited to interview uh, today Steve Lobby. He is kind of a big name in the Christian publishing industry, maybe even the only name that a lot of people know. Um, He's the president and founder of the Steve Lobby Agency, a literary agency. He has uh, almost 40 years of experience just in the Christian bookselling world and publishing world. He's been a bookstore manager. He's been an editor at a publisher, and he's also uh, the president of the Christian Writers Institute, and then he has some um, various books to his name. Oh, and also he's the president of um, Enclave Publishing. Is that how you pronounce it? That's correct. Okay, Um, which publishes Christian fantasy and science fiction. So this guy has done it all. Really, you've been kind of at almost at every angle of the Christian publishing kind of world, um, which is really awesome. And that's why I think he's going to bring a lot of value to our audience on Creatively Christian. Well, I want to first ask you um, just kind of uh, how you got into this industry and really mainly why you're kind of excited about the world of Christian books. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, I'll just say it's been a lifelong uh, passion of mine and just, uh, I'm a student, an eternal student. So I'm always learning, always interested in uh, what's new, what's different, uh, how things work. I mean, even all the way back in college, I, (laughs) oh golly, those are now ancient historical documents. Um, (laughs) But I actually took a class on death and dying and we had to create a paper or an oral presentation to the class. And I chose the topic existentialism and the meaning of death. All right. And I lectured for probably 20 minutes with charts and graphs and blackboard filled. And I had a C in the classroom of jaws open and dead eyes because no one knew what I was talking about. Mm. But I was so passionate about it because I just wanted to understand what is the meaning of all this. And that kernel of wanting to know more, uh, basically has served well from my early days as a bookseller, you know, trying to get into the minds of great thinkers and then uh, alternatively then being able to put those great minds into the hands of others and hoping it would do the same for them. So I've been involved in this ever since I was a a college senior when I began working in a bookstore part-time. And kind of worked worked my way up the uh, the ladder, so to speak. Yeah, wow, definitely. Yeah, that's really cool. My my dad actually owned a Christian bookstore for a while. He took it over, wow. and so I've been in the Christian bookstore world, and it's fascinating. And 
there's a lot of good stuff out there and it's definitely a great place to um, it is and explore. as your your dad would say it's also very hard to make a living at it uh unless you're very fortunate have some a great community that can surround you or incredible fortune which is why it's so difficult to watch the demise of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christian bookstores across the country for various economic reasons, but also just the um, inability of our industry to be able to billboard new products. In other words, putting them up where people can see them and Mm -hmm. decide, oh, I like this or I like that. Instead, we're relegated to the algorithms of Amazon saying, well, if you bought this, you'll like this. Well, maybe I won't. Uh, and it's a very different world now in regard to marketing and getting our ideas in front of people, which uh, makes the job that much, that much more, uh, I shouldn't say different, different, uh, difficult. It's more, it's just different. Yes, definitely. Yeah. My, my dad had to close that bookstore um, several years ago just because you can't compete with Amazon and then, you know, Walmart selling Christian books now. And yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So. They take the cream off the top. At least Walmart does. They'll take the top 10 or 20 titles. Well, those right. are your, those are your bread and butter. And if you take the bu- the bread away, you're just left with butter and it melts. So. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Yeah. All right. Well, Steve, we talked a little bit about um, creativity right before I hit record. And um, in our initial email, we were talking about the nature of Christian fiction. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak a little bit about, um, I guess it's a two-part question, where where creativity comes from and um, what that looks like in fiction that's particularly Christian and sure. how it kind of earns that title. Yeah, that's... Uh... Those are vast topics we could probably talk for hours because yes, yes. we'd be fascinated <laughs> and share millions of stories. Well, I've read widely uh, with regard to the nature of creativity and what that is and what is art. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to define those terms before you can really have a successful conversation. But when I look at extraordinary creativity, I truly believe that its origins is God himself. God is the ultimate creator. He started it all. I mean, we don't have to beg that question. If you have any belief in the sufficiency of scripture and the authority of scripture, there's no question that in the beginning, God. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about creativity, you know, everyone, I've had people say, oh, I'm not creative. I went, well, yeah, you are. You just maybe not putting it into words. You may not be expressing it in music. You may not be a dancer. You may not be an artist as in painting. But I'll bet you dollars to donuts if we have a conversation, I'll eventually find an area where you are vastly creative in ways that I never will be. And so the I believe that in part of our Imago Dei, the image of God, is his own creativity within us. And that's why in scripture, he 
asks or demands through the writings of Paul and others that we do everything we do with excellence for the glory of God. Mm. And that's full circle. So, you know, philosophically, theologically, that's this foundational underpinning of everything we do. So when I, you know, started the agency now 17, almost 18 years ago, I had to come up with a, a I don't know, a, a motto or a saying. And I realized that I don't write the books, but I help the writers who do. So our motto is to help change the world word by word. That's what we do. This is what an agency is all about. And then over at Enclave Publishing, where we publish, you know, strange stories. Yeah. Uh, the motto I came up there is we publish out of this world stories, literally, out of this world stories that are informed by a coherent theology. And the key word in that phrase is not the word theology, it's the word informed. So that means the artist, if they are informed by a coherent theology, can write vastly redemptive books that are not overtly Christian. Mm. They don't have to be, because the artist themselves are Christian, and their worldview then permeates the writing and makes sure that what comes out in the final form is not degrading to other people. It's not overly sexual just for the sake of sensuality, uh, that there are certain temperate elements within that person's own makeup that then comes forth in the stories. And so consequently, we can have magic, <gasps> magic <laughs> in our stories because that magic comes from God. Who says it can't? If you tell me, well, that can't happen, I can say, really? You know that God could never make that happen? Uh, uh, this is going to okay. be a si side note here, and I'm sorry you get me going on stories, but I no remember problem. reading about an interview that Billy Graham had on a talk show. And the talk show host was trying to, um, what's my word here, um, uh, trick Billy Graham into saying something stupid. Mm. So he asked Billy Graham the question, do you believe in UFOs? Now, that's a loaded question on a talk show for a pastoral uh, figure like Billy Graham. And Billy Graham said, well, it's an interesting question, but I, I sense that within that question, you're asking me, do I believe if there is life on other planets? And the uh, host went, well, sure, go ahead. Yeah. Do you believe in life on other planets? And Billy Graham smiled and said, my God is a big God. And if he can provide for my salvation and yours, he can provide for the salvation of those on other planets who we have never met. That's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Now, as for Christian fiction, I touched on it a little bit with related to, to Enclave Publishing, and I'd say that, that that same criteria goes into all the other genres. I mean, you can have Amish fiction, you can have thrillers, you can have historical, you have romance. I mean, every genre that's out there 
that's published under the uh, umbrella of Christian fiction has within it that sensibility. And there are three areas that are the hot buttons. In fact, I wrote a blog. If you ever go to my agency's website, we have 2,000 blogs that we've put up over the years. Yeah. And one of them is called, What is Edgy Christian Fiction? You know, you have to define that. Well, what does that mean? And then if there's an edge, what happens if you fall off of it? Hmm. So the three areas are sexuality, language, and violence. Mm -hmm. So within Christian fiction, you might have sensual scenes if they are appropriate or if they are off camera that have implications or are necessary to the movement of the story and the building of the characters, fine. We just don't have to go in the bedroom. I mean, for goodness sake, people. I mean, it's bad enough turning on television. And now that everything's streamed, there's not even a filter on any television in the United States and even in the world. None. I mean, it used to be at least there was a filter for the, uh, you know, the free channels. Then mm-hmm. secondly is language. Again, the coarseness of our society has caused various words to creep into our everyday language that 20 years ago would have made my mom reach out across the table and tweak my cheek very hard and say, son, not in my house. But today it's like, oh, what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal because language has meaning. And the third area is violence. Now, we used to joke when I was an editor at Bethany House that you could kill as many people as you wanted in your novel as as long as you didn't have sex with any of them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was kind of funny because we had some Western novel where in the first three chapters, there were nine people killed. And, but it was part of the storyline. It Mm. was focusing on a particular bad guy and his ravaging a community. And so then the good old sheriff comes in and saves the day kind of thing. Um, I'm really simplifying it, but, uh, I tell writers that just don't splatter the blood. In other words, just don't be horrific about it. There are violent things that occur. But let me tell you, if your novel is a, a, a story of spousal abuse, you're going to want to be really careful how you portray that in that novel because there's going to be people who read it who cannot handle that because it's a memory for them. Mm. So you have to be really careful in, in it. And, and people will say, well, then all Christian fiction is sappy and it's not realistic. And I, my answer is always, well, you haven't read very many of it. M- many of those novels, have you? Fair. Yeah. Fair. I mean, the bottom line is, is that all of that is done and done incredibly well but people just simply go, well, it's Christian. It must be stupid Hmm. or must be less than artistic. And it's just, it's canned and it, well, okay. Show me one is my answer. I will challenge that, that statement. I'll even challenge it to a writer who's pitching me their novel 
who's saying, yeah, all that Christian fiction is, is sappy. I went, well, which one have you read lately? And they never have an answer for me ever hmm. because they're making an assumption. They're making an assumption based on a cover. Oh, it has a pretty girl on the cover. It must be sappy. Hmm. Well, maybe that book wasn't written for you. So uh, obviously I, I get very defensive when it comes to the attacks on our industry because they're just simply unwarranted. They come out of ignorance, not out of knowledge. At the same time, there are some, let's just say, less than stellar works. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will, I'll, use this, I'll use an illustration of that. So I was lecturing to a public library system. And I was talking to them about Christian fiction. And I mean, the room was full of non-Christian librarians. They were not, uh, how should I say, sympathetic. And so they were grumbling about my lecture. I could hear it in the room. I mean, murmuring and things wow. like that. And I'd had them read a, a particular title beforehand. And the critique started coming in. Ah, you know, it was not well written. And the dialogue is weak. And da, 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 da. And I still, know, I still remember the lady with a smoker's voice in the back part of one in the room. She goes very loudly, give the guy a break. And the whole room went silent. She said, we got our Danielle Steeles. We have our Andrew Greeley's. He's just got the bodice rippers without the rip. Hmm. And the whole room went, oh. Oh, I see. So this is the Christian version of Danielle Steele. Okay, fine. I had never heard that before. and I've never forgotten it because it describes the variety that's in the general market is the same variety in the Christian market. It's just that when it comes from a Christian perspective, it's going to have a different uh, underlying purpose uh, a purpose to it. So that's a very long answer, but you asked two very huge questions. <laughs> I, I know. I'm so glad you talked about that. That's right in line with um, what we do at my company, Theophany Media, and what we're trying to do with this podcast, trying to have those conversations. So I'm really glad about that. Now, I do want to pull a thread there. Um, I've been reading um, What is Art by uh, Leo Tolstoy. And um, his argument is essentially like we shouldn't, the purpose of art should not be just for pleasure. Um, this is really simplification, but that it has to kind of uh, teach something or has to ha offer some kind of moral good. Okay. Would you say the same with um, Christian literature? Do they need to teach something? I would say if you go at it with that purpose, you'll end up writing a bad book. Okay. You'll be writing a novel that's actually a sermon in story form. What you should do is write the absolutely best story you possibly can. Create the most incredible piece of art that you possibly can. Express yourself in dance or music in a way that you have never done it before. And let the Spirit of God touch your viewer, touch your reader, touch your listener in a way that they did not expect. Because if you go at it with, I am going to teach them about this, 
and they're sitting there going, oh, be quiet. I mean, how often have we wished that the musician would stop talking and start singing? Right. It's that same problem. I'm not here to listen to you preach, buddy. I'm listening here to listen to you sing. And guess what? When I close my eyes and as you hear what music begins to wash over me, my spirit is moved. Now, I'm not saying that musicians don't shouldn't speak. I mean, that's not fair, but you, you understand my point. So I will illustrate this for you. And uh, I, I pull this out and I use this when I teach. So I was editing a novel called St. Ben, written by John Fisher, who's a musician and a novelist. Marvelous story. It was one of the first novels I ever, ever edited it as an editor. And I was at a convention, gave a copy of the book to a, uh, an acquaintance, saying, here's an example of some of the new kind of fiction that Bethany House is doing. She goes, thank you very much. About two months later, my phone rings, and it's this woman on the phone crying. Now, I don't know her well enough to have her doing that, so I was a little uncomfortable. Sure. And she said, well, I just, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cry when, I, when you answered the phone, but I just finished reading St. Ben. And I went, oh, I understand. I cried too at the end. She goes, no, 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 no. Yeah, that ending was powerful, but that isn't why I'm calling. Because you see, in that novel, it finally came true to me that I could keep my faith amidst doubt in who God is. I went, really? Whoa. I mean, explain. So she went into it and she started talking about you know, the wrestling with that tension. Can I know? Can I not know? How does faith come in? If I doubt something, does that mean I've lost my faith? You know, those kind of questions that pop into people's minds. So we had a nice conversation. I hung up. A couple months later, I'm having dinner with the author, John Fisher. I tell him this story and I get to the punchline and I said, and she says, for the first time, I realize it's okay to doubt because of reading that novel. Now, the author sat back in his chair and went, doubt? There's nothing in that novel about doubt. <laughs> and I said, well, sure there is, John. Remember this one scene over here where you had these two characters and that conversation? The wash of surprise across the writer's face. He just went, oh, my goodness sake. Wow. And he's, then he looked at me and he says, you know, I could have written a nonfiction book on the 12 reasons why it's okay to doubt God, and she never would have read it. Yeah. And I said, John, instead, you wrote an amazing story, and God used your story in a way that you never intended. So there's my, re there's my answer to Leo Tolstoy. If you have a pragmatic... Um, mercenary mission. Okay, I understand you want people to come to Christ. You want people to have a concept of redemption. I get that. But don't turn it into a track. That isn't good writing. Instead, write an amazing story, and you probably will end up surprising yourself a few times. You kind of go, oh, I, I never knew I could write something like that. And then you find when the reader comes to it, 
it's called reader response theory. It's a critical right. theory, and you probably are familiar with it. In but, biblical studies, where, where I'm generally familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, well, it's very powerful in literature is that two people can read the same book and come away with different answers. Yeah, sure. Because they bring their own story and create a new story out of it. Um, that's one of the interesting things about the Bible in that it seems to have a consistent response to whoever reads it but you don't have the same reaction when you read John Grisham or Stephen King or Leo Tolstoy for that matter. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is pretty solid in that regard is that the reader response seems to be pretty similar across the board, no matter where that person is coming from. It, it, the power of God and the Holy Spirit will meet them where they are. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you gave that answer because that's just a better way to say kind of what I believe, tell good stories um, is something <laughs> I'm always urging people to do. Um, and so I'm glad we're on the same page about that, or I'm on your page about that. Well, it's it's just simply, it's not necessarily our page. Okay. <laughs> to, to me, it's common sense. I mean, you have to also look back when Tolstoy was writing that. It's a different era. Yeah, definitely. And artists lived on at the pleasure of their patrons. So they had to create and please their patron. Well, guess what? Mm -hmm. Today, we have patrons. They just aren't a single wealthy individual paying our salary. There are thousands of people paying quarters and dimes and nickels into our, our beggar's bag. Yeah. And uh, it's a little bit of a different economic thing, but who are we pleasing? Well, ultimately, if we're not pleasing God, we're not pleasing anybody. But at the same time, you want to write a great story that gets people talking. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was some off, awesome stuff about stories and um, creativity. I want to move a little bit into the uh, business side of things, quote unquote. I would really be interested in uh, hearing from you what a literary agent does. Why does anybody get a literary agent? Sure. Well, the easiest way to, uh, I should say the simplest way to define that is that every athlete has an agent. Every actor has an agent. And I happen to be the agent, but for the writer. Mm. So there's your difference. Now, what does that agent do? I mean, you know, we're not shouting up, jumping up and down in, a, in our uh, uh, in our office saying, "Show me the money," like as we see in the movies. Uh, <laughs> but I handle the business side of things. So, for example, Jake, if you and I were to work together, and you had this amazing idea that I think has commercial value, and I know of five or six publishers that uh, are just absolutely perfect for what you're doing, then we make an arrangement and then I shepherd your material to those publishers and make sure that the negotiations are handled. And someone just would say, well, why can't I go to those uh, publishers myself? Yeah, maybe. They don't know you. They know me. And, uh, when I first started my agency, I actually went to every editor in the industry and I said, I vow to never waste your time. 
But if you get a proposal from me, it's worth five minutes, maybe 10. Give it a chance. Because you know, I know what good books are. And you know, I'm not going to waste your time. So give it a chance. And that's how I've operated ever since. And so my job is to keep those relationships alive, making sure I understand the changes in the industry. I mean, I published the Christian Writers Market Guide annually. Right. And we, when we just did the 2121 edition, which comes out uh, middle of December um, in print, we have an online version that's updated all the time. But there were almost... Um, 500 changes in the book. I mean, from last year's edition to this year's. And we're talking companies that existed last year don't this year because the pandemic killed them. Yeah, sure. Um, but then there were others that are startups that the pandemic gave people the opportunity going, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And suddenly, boop. Well, how would you know that? You, you can't keep track of this industry. That's my job. Then when it comes to negotiation, you might think you know what a book contract looks like. You might think you know the value of your contract, but you don't have anything to weigh it against. So, for example, I'll, I'll uh, represent a few uh, scholars who are academics, extreme academics. And in the past, they just signed whatever contract was put in front of them. Oh my goodness. I've seen some of those and they left a lot of money on the table and they left a lot of rights on the table. So now I come in and I, you know, tug and pull and have the, uh, the old negotiation thing. And now they have, they have contracts that uh, they are still weighted on the publisher's side, but at least not so heavily. <clears throat> and those are the kinds of things I, I do that's how I get paid. I get paid a commission for the author's earnings on their book. Every agent gets around 15% of the author's earnings. But beyond that, let's say you contract your book, everything is fine and happy, and then your editor quits. Now what? Who's the new editor? Who's the one who's touching your book? And you don't know this stranger. Stranger danger. Yeah. And things start coming up in the editing process and you're going, Oh my goodness, they're doing this to me. And you call your agent and you say, Steve, they're doing this. And I'm going, yeah, that's normal. And you went, it is. I didn't know that. I thought, oh yeah. That's actually, this is how this company works or this is how the editing process works. Uh, you, you see right away, you have that veteran who can come alongside you and assure you that you're not being snookered. I don't get paid for that. That's part of my job. I mean, my phone will ring a couple times a week with some sort of either editorial or uh, marketing problem or, um, you know, rights issue that comes up. Uh, the sheer variety of that is rather quite, quite, quite fascinating. Um, and then just general career advice. What do I write next? I had this success. Am I supposed to write that again? I remember when I, was working with Cindy Woodsmall, who was one of the first successful uh, writers of Amish fiction. <clears throat> you started that? You started that whole genre? <laughs> no, she she was third. You had okay. Bev Lewis and Wanda Brunsetter and then Cindy Woodsmall back before it was a genre. 
Gotcha. This is 2006. Um, in fact, I still remember to this day getting her unsolicited proposal in my inbox. I had it reviewed. The reviewer put three stars across the top and said, and with the phrase, Steve, pay attention. And so I started reading going, wow, this is a great writer. This is an amazing story, but it's Amish. Who reads Amish fiction? <laughs> but thought, you know, this is something unique. And there was an editor who had the same vision, Shannon Marchese, who was working for Waterbrook at the time. <clears throat> and the book hit the New York Times bestseller list. So anyway, back to the story. Yes, yeah, sir. She calls me and says, do I have to write Amish for the rest of my life? And I said, well, as long as there's coal in this train, yeah. And that's what she's done. Wow. So you see, she actually went back into her archives and found stories that she had either started or played with or whatever in the, you know, over her lifetime. And she converted them hmm. and put them into Amish settings. Uh, and that was how it all started. It's, it, it, it she had an idea. She had an Amish, an old order Amish friend that uh, gave her some insight and she created a story. And the next thing you know, you have this phenomenon that today is now a genre. It's not a fad. It's yeah. not going away. Yeah. Interesting. So just to summarize, literary agents, your agents are dealing with the money stuff, the, the representing you in general. Um, and dispensing their wisdom about uh, book trends and and uh, yep, yep. and all that kind of thing, and yes. and brainstorming what's next, or even if you run into a oh okay, uh, um, well Cindy Wood Smalls an example. She had a novel that she was writing, and she was come to the end. She didn't know how to end it because she had another book to come, but she wasn't sure. And so she called me, and I said, "Well, you know." Technically, your editor should have this conversation with you. She goes, I know, but I want to try it out first before I, you know, show my laundry to her. Uh, <laughs> and so we worked it out. And as she described her story up to that point, this is going to sound really silly, but I just says, well, why don't you put him on a train? And that's not going to make any sense to you in context, <laughs> out, out of context. And Cindy went, oh. Oh my goodness. That's it. That's all I need. And so it became the transitional motion from book two to book three. Mm. And she hadn't, she couldn't see it. She was too close to it. And so I'm, you know, far away. And I said, well, where are you? Where are you? And where are you going? So something needs to happen right here in this gap. And she couldn't think of it. And I just said, well, just put him on a train. And, uh, you know, have it fade to black. And she's going, that's it. That's perfect. So you see, sometimes you have someone who is a fellow reader, fellow artist, who understands you, that you can run ideas by, and you're not afraid of having the professional, um, you know, your publisher saying, wow, that was really a dumb idea. Why <laughs> did we ever contract you? Oh, yeah. Instead, it stays in between us. And those are the kinds of things that happen frequently. Uh, Sharon Hink won the Christie Award this year for Enclave Publishing for her book, Hidden Current. 
and uh, the entire story idea came in a brainstorming session that she and I had in her home a few years ago. She and I were having dinner and just talking about what she wanted to write next. And I looked at her and I says, you were a dancer. You taught dance. Why don't you make dance the magic? And so in that story, the power in that world is the movement of the dancers. And she added all these other things into it, you know, floating islands and all sorts of other stuff. And it ends up winning the Christie Award. That's so cool. That is cool. That is so cool. So, Wow. Well, now um, I'm pumped about agents. I'm going to go get myself a couple now. Um, <laughs> you can only have one. Well, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That, the issue actually, that actually is a good question because I've had people say, well, I want an agent for my fiction or an agent for my nonfiction. That was my question. Yeah. And I say, well, there's a problem with that because if you're doing a contract, you're setting up deadlines and there needs to be coordination oh. and you have to make sure that the uh, non-compete clauses are correct because if you have two different publishers, things can get really um, messed up if you don't do it right. And so if I'm working with an author who says they have another agent, I, I does that mean I have to become that other agent's best friend too? So I have to manage them as well as manage you because I'm not going to, you know, I can't assume that you're managing both of us. Well, it's creates some confusion. Just put it that way. It's better to have a 360 degree person who is totally sold out in every aspect of, of your career. Now, people have said, well, because I have musicians who are writers and they have an agent or a manager for their music. And that's fine. That's a different industry. Okay. Yeah. Has nothing to do with books unless we want to try to coordinate the release of their new album with the release of their book. Um, there's reasons why that's very difficult to happen. But, um, but that's a different element entirely. Uh, and people will ask me, well, I need to get an attorney for my intellectual property. Well, that's fine. I probably know as much as they do in relation to book publishing. Intellectual property law is vastly broader than just books. I know an intellectual property lawyer here in town, and we've had lunch and we've talked. And where she works, believe it or not, is an intellectual property created by people inside virtual worlds. Oh, okay. And there are lawsuits that happen in this world related to the theft of intellectual property inside virtual worlds. And I just looked at her and went, you got to be kidding me. She goes, you would be amazed how much money is in those virtual worlds and how people steal stuff all the time. And I, I, I just kind of went, sounds like ready player one to me. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, well, that's great, I focus on the book world. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. I write both fiction and nonfiction. So that's, that's good to know. That is a question I've had before. Um, so I would, so somebody in my position would want to find somebody with interests and the ability to balance both of those. Right. Cause I know some agents kind of like, hyper specialize in certain genres or something like that that's correct uh in fact in the general market you'll find agents that only deal with cookbooks 
I know of a, uh, a, a general market literary agent that all he does is military history. Hmm. Um, I'm pretty much eclectic. I, as I say, I'll represent everything from the sweet romance to the systematic theology and everything in between. We both do fiction and nonfiction. Um, in our agency, Tamla Hancock Murray, she does some nonfiction, but most of her clients are fiction. Bob Hostetler, he his is tipped a little more in the nonfiction area, but he has a large uh, group of novelists. I'm about 50-50 uh, right now. And you know, it, it can go up and go down as a percentage. Most agents in the Christian business uh, who are specialized will tell you that up front. They'll just simply say, I don't do with, I don't deal with fiction. So go find someone else. Okay. Yeah. So I took your course on um, creating a book proposal through the Christian Writers Institute some couple years ago, I think. Um, And uh, I, I think you had like a, you had a sheet where you could just kind of fill in your own information or something with along right, with that. Right. So I went ahead and did that with my book. And then I got to the spot where it asked about social media followers. <laughs> so my question is, does that matter? Does your platform, we use that word in the writing world, does uh, yeah. platform matter when you're trying to approach an agent or a publisher? I should probably revise that, uh, <coughs> that form okay. a little bit. <laughs> Social media metrics are one of many measures with regard to someone's platform. As we have discovered, especially in the last few years, when Facebook changed their algorithm, when Instagram keeps messing with theirs, when we all realize that you can't sell books via Twitter, um, that social media is a, like I said, it's one measure. And you can buy followers. So someone says they have 150,000 Twitter followers. I'm going, really? How much did you spend to get that? Because that isn't necessarily a true estimate. The most important metric is how many people you have on your personal mailing list, your email list. If you say, I have 200 people, well, that's nice for you. It needs to have another zero or two after it. Oh boy. I have some work to do then. Yeah. I'm serious because it's a measure of these are your stark raving fans Mm -hmm. who will buy, you know, half of them are going to buy your book the moment it's published. Right. Um, That needs to be a large number. The bigger, the better. Now you might say, but that's not fair. I'll never do. I'll never get there. I understand. But let's go to the publisher side of it for a second. Let's you and I step out of this room and walk into the publisher's dungeon where they make decision. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They have three proposals in front of them from three amazing novelists in the same genre. Well, let's just pick a genre. Let's say it's historical fiction, World War II, all three of them. Book one is from best-selling author, Charlie Charlie. Book two is from rising star, Sally Sally. And book three is from Jake Doberance. Uh-oh. Which one are they going to pick? Because they can only pick one. 
So let's, let's change that picture a little bit. Let's say all three of them are Jake. There's Jake E, Jake I, and Jake O. But all, all three right. are World War II debut, first time World War II novelists. Jake E has 200 people in their mail enemies. Jake I has 500 and Jake O has 2,500. Which one will they pick? If all things are equal, which one is easier for the publisher to sell more books? It's that simple. A publisher wants to be able to publish books without working at it. Yeah, okay. They want to just say, if we throw this out into the world, we're going to make boodles and boodles of money. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll put our effort behind it and make it oodles and boodles and oodles. But we have to have a starting place, and that's the platform. So when you have a client like I have in nonfiction, I have an author, a financial finance author, who has 90,000 people on her email list and she emails them five days a week oh. and they don't unsubscribe. Oh yeah. Because each day is a tiny little fiction tip on how to save money today. And she's been doing it for decades. Hmm. <laughs> it's unreal. She actually has full books of these ideas and you bring that kind of platform to the table and you tell those 90,000 people, hey, I've got a new book. Wow. 20,000 of them are ready to write the check today. That is the competition that's out there. And that's why it's so overwhelming to those who begin because they just look at this vast expanse of professionals who've been at it for a long time and they go, I'll never get there. Well, let me just say, every one of them who's there started where you are every last one of them i have seen it over and over and over again and sometimes it isn't the first book that's the bestseller uh, there's a nonfiction author who's top of the list right now her name is lissa turkhurst mm -hmm. um i'm not her agent i just know of her books it was her third book that was the bestseller not the first one not the second one it was the third one. John Eldridge, if people pointed his book Wild at Heart going, oh, it was so amazing. It sold a million copies. It was his third book, not his first one. And I, people who are John Eldridge fans, I say, can you name his first two? Probably not. Hmm. But that book became uh, a word of mouth bestseller. I mean, Rick Warren had been publishing. He had the purpose-driven church before he had the purpose-driven life. And I just have to tell, tell folks, you've got to look at this in a, I guess, uh, it is a long journey, not a sprint. Boy, that's cliched. But you understand the point. And I use it this for this in a metaphor of it's like climbing Mount Everest. You know, if you wake up tomorrow and decide, you know, I'm going to make it my goal to climb Mount Everest before I'm 50. Well, 
I've already missed that goal, but that's, oh. <laughs> uh, but if I'm going to do that before I'm 50, what is it going to take? Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this or this. Well, if the metaphor of climbing Mount Everest is the idea of planting your published book on the top, why do so many people show up at base camp in tank tops and flip-flops? They will die on the way up the mountain because they're not prepared. They don't understand what it takes. But you, for example, you took a class on writing book proposal. What an incredible exercise. You now know more about book proposals than 90% of the people who send me book proposals. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, I wrote 25 rejection letters this morning. And of those 25, five of them actually knew what they were doing in their proposal itself. The other 20, I just go, oh, please go figure out how this works. You're applying for a job for people to pay you money to write your work. Oh, yeah, that's a good way. It's not just something you toss out because it feels good or it's interesting. You have to really know what you're doing. And so, but those who figure it out, they go to Cabela's and buy the big puffy coats. They take altitude training in the Rockies. They hire a Sherpa called Steve Lobby. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It's still a dangerous journey. And you might die on the way up of the mountain. But what really aggravates every author I work with is that when you get to the top of the mountain and you plant your book flag, your Sherpa turns to you and says, hey, that was fun. Let's do it again. And that's what this journey is. Because okay. you go back down to the base camp and you start over with book two. And you climb that mountain and you plant that flag. And then you go back down to the bottom of the mountain and you start book three. And all of this is wrapped up in our beginning of our conversation is being called as creatives by God to utilize the gifts that we have. And it may not be Mount Everest that you're climbing. It might be Camelback Mountain here in Phoenix, which you can see the top just by, you know, you can walk up it in 30 minutes. Mm. Every mountain is different. Every goal is different. But if your only goal is to be on the New York Times bestseller list, yeah, you, you might be shooting a little high. How about we, our goal is to be faithful first and then see what happens. That's awesome stuff. You've given so, so much great advice to me personally and I think to the audience. Um, I have not ever sent you a book proposal, so I can say I've never been rejected <laughs> by Steve Lobby um, because I'm too scared to right now. And it sounds like I have some work to do. So <laughs> I will work on that. Um, well, I will say to everyone who's listening and to you, Jake, as well, good books overcome bad proposals. If you got an amazing story and you just didn't put the proposal together, right? Okay. We can fix that. That's just logistics. Hmm. But if you have an amazing book that I just go, oh, wow. I just signed a debut novelist for Enclave Publishing. Her book will come out next November. And it was a book she pitched me at uh, Rollmakers virtually in July of this year. Yeah. And I started reading the story and went, oh, my goodness. Proposal had all sorts of holes in it. We've talked about that. Um, and they're all fixable. 
uh, I've already bought the book, so we don't need the proposal now, but it was more on the marketing side. Well, what do you do? What's next? How are we, well, we going to make this book launch and launch well? But we have a year to do it. Yeah, we're not launching the book tomorrow. We have a, quite a while, but it started with an amazing story that was so creative and something that I just, I just thought this is something that our science fiction and fantasy readers are going to really embrace because um, it's different. It's new. It's yeah. a science fiction story in, in a way that I've never seen a story written like that. And that's the kind of fun we have. Um, over at Enclave, we did a book last March called Mortal Sight by uh, Sandra Fernandez Rhodes. And in that, one of the devices, the literary devices, is Milton's Paradise Lost. And the words, and periodically, and then there's these quotes from Milton that help pull the story forward. It's amazing. And ended up, Purdue University, a professor of, of, of literature at Purdue University is using her book in her classroom as a textbook on how to utilize classic literature in modern writing. How interesting. Who knew that something like that could ever yeah. happen? But how? She wrote a great book. And somehow it got into the hands of this professor the, uh, uh, the author, Sandra, has now been inside the classroom virtually now because of COVID um, and been able to talk to the students about how she did that. Uh, Jake, this is what the beauty of this, this industry is. Yeah. The opportunities are vast and wide. Um, and it's really quite, quite fun to be a part of. Yeah, that's awesome. I hope my story is that amazing, but I might be a little biased and how cool it is. <laughs> well, you better be. I'll because if you don't like it, no one else will. <laughs> that 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 makes sense. <laughs> I yeah, I do really like it. It's a story I came up with in 5th grade and I've not I didn't write it in 5th grade with the idea of it, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that's a different conversation. Well, um, hey, you can go back to CS Lewis and find his early childhood stories that have been published. Have you ever seen his book, Boxen, B-O-X-E-N? I don't think so. Those are his childhood stories that he wrote out. And they found them in the midst of, you know, his papers. And they brought them out. And so you can see the mind of a child, C.S. Lewis, and his his, uh, creativity even back then. It's kind of interesting. That is interesting. Well, my, uh, you can tell my story is created by a child because, the title character, his name is Super Jake. So really creative <laughs> with the with the protagonist name there. Well, I'm reading a, a, a general market science fiction novel now called Slanted Jack. And it, it has this tongue-in-cheek humor in there because the planet that everybody's trying to get to that has been, you know, cordoned off and nobody can get there because of all the great secrets that are there. And the uh, the, the main character says... Yeah, it's a really weird name of the planet, but that's what you get when the starship captain who discovers the planet asks his six-year-old grandson, what should we call it? And the kid says, Pinkle Punker. (laughs) And that's the name of the planet in the book. 
And so like the it. name Pinkle Ponker is throughout the story. And I laugh every time because I'm going, I could just see my, you know, five-year-old grandson saying, let's call it Pinkle Ponker. And everyone goes, okay. And it becomes the thing we call it for the rest of history. That's <laughs> pretty funny. I love it. Obviously, the author had a grandson that said something silly and he put it into the book at some point. Sure. <laughs> anyway. So, Steve, I hope you can just kind of leave us with um, a vision of the future. Um, for what is what does Christian publishing look like? And I don't just mean what are the next fads, um, but what do you what do you hope to see? What kind of transitions and changes are you seeing? It's a good question. Uh, the COVID nineteen crisis has caused everybody to take a very hard look at the future. Um, just because the nature of how books are sold and discoverability within new books is radically different this year in 2020 than it even was in 2019, and it was already hard then. So we're looking at book ideas that almost sell themselves. Uh, I, I, when I When I teach this, I try to say to a class the question, I try to ask the question to the class, would you even buy your own book if you didn't know who you were? Hmm. So it's on a shelf virtually on Amazon or in physical form in Barnes and Noble. Why would you pick yours and not the one next to it? What is it about yours that makes it unique? Is it the title? Is it the cover? Is it the content? I mean, what is it about yours that makes it stand out? And that is the future of publishing. It's always been the future of publishing. How do we figure out how to sell next year's books, but figure it out today so that we can implement those uh, things in the process. But um, Christian publishing as a whole is healthy. Uh, there are some very strong publishers, a lot of them actually. It isn't just reliant on three or four mega corporations. Um, uh, they, that will always be the case that there's always the big, big guys eating the little ones. Mm -hmm. But within the Christian industry, we have a lot of great thinkers and those publishers are looking for next years and the next generation of great teachers and writers because, you know, people age and the marketplace ages. Uh, I remember one uh, author by the name of Jenny Allen, who is now on the bestseller list, but uh, when she was pitching me her first book, she said to me, I've sat at the feet of Kay Arthur and, and uh, Beth Moore, but they teach my mom. Mm -hmm. I'm writing Bible studies for my generation who likes to sit around in a circle and bare feet and overshare. And I laughed and she goes, well, that's my point is I'm looking at creating Bible studies for the next generation. And that was her vision. And guess what? That's what she's doing. And she was an anointed writer and anointed speaker and is really doing great things with her if gatherings, but that was her original pitch. She saw that, the, the genius of those great teachers 
was also a genius of a different generation. And she was very aware of that. And I think that's something we all need to be aware of. I mean, I'm, I have grandchildren and I have to look at, well, who is going to be writing the books to them? Because in 15 years, they will be graduating. They'll be in college. And in 20 years, they'll be adults and maybe married and maybe have children of their own. That's not that long from now. Who will be the ones? Who is the ones that God is raising up today? Because Josh McDowell may still be around, but probably isn't going to be the one talking to my grandson. And so we have to think about that constantly. Mm -hmm. And this is why there is opportunity for those who see writing and publishing and the creative arts in an entrepreneurial sense. In an entrepreneurial sense means you work hard, you pray like crazy, but you become really good at what you do. That is awesome. This went longer than I expected, or that, but I don't care. Uh, you <laughs> gave us some really great things, uh, Steve. Great things to think about and definitely some action steps that I know I will be applying in my life. Um, and in my hopefully future um, published career in the fiction space. Um, thank you so much. If people want to hear more about your wild ideas and all your training, all the things that you're doing, um, where are some spaces that people can head to find out more? Oh, mainly it's the Steve Lobby, L-A-U-B-E, B as in boy, stevelobby.com. Uh, we have a a blog Monday through Friday uh, that you can get for free. And uh, there's yeah, 2000 really articles in the archives that if you were to sit down and read them all, you would get a crash course in what happens within the publishing industry. Um, that's a great place to start. It's a beginning anyway. And then over at the Christian Writers Institute, we've got over a hundred courses and they're not designed as super expensive thousand dollar courses i mean we have courses in there that cost four dollars for goodness yeah. sake uh the idea is to be able to listen to lectures <clears throat> or to watch video of some of the great teachers in our industry in a, an economical manner that uh, allows you to at least think about these things a little more intentionally i mean there may be more sophisticated programs out there and that's fine. I'm not trying to replicate that. Uh, I'm trying to make things affordable and accessible to as many people as possible uh, so that we can all raise our level of success uh, that much, that much easier and that much better. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this bonus episode for creatively Christian. Um, it was great to have you. Uh, like I said, learned tons um and it's really really exciting that such a figure like you would um come to our humble uh podcast so <laughs> well thanks for asking me jake it's it's a privilege and an honor to address creatives in any way shape or form so thank you for having me yeah thank you thank you so much for listening today to get all the links and resources that were mentioned in this episode please visit our website, 
theopanymedia.com forward slash Steve. Creatively Christian is a product of Theophany Media. You can find out more at theophanymedia.com. This show is hosted by Brandon Hollingsworth, Andrea Sandifer, Dave Ebert, and Rachel Oxborough. Our logo is by Bill Brooks. Bill Brooks and Andrea Sandifer did our music. And Jake Dobrins produces and edits the show.